The FT. Concern is rising once again that simmering violence in the war-torn regions of eastern Ukraine could boil over. Chancellor Angela Merkel and French President François Hollande have convened an emergency summit with Petro Poroshenko, their Ukrainian counterpart, on Monday to discuss the crisis. At the same time, Kiev is in the middle of a difficult negotiation with its private sector creditors to restructure its sovereign debt. I'm Ben Hall, World News Editor of the Financial Times. Joining me to discuss these latest developments are Neil Buckley, our Eastern Europe editor, and Elaine Moore, our Capital Markets correspondent. Neil, what exactly is happening in the East and how serious is it? Well, there's been a significant upsurge in violence over the past eight to 10 days. It's calmed actually a little just in the last 24, 48 hours. But there's a lot of nervousness that it could increase again very quickly, particularly towards August the 24th, which is Ukraine's Independence Day which is also the anniversary of when large numbers of Russian forces crossed the border last year. Both sides, of course, are pointing the finger at the other as being responsible for this upsurge, but it's fairly clear from our reporting that it's been the rebel forces, the Russian-backed rebels, that have been responsible for the violations primarily. They've been happening south of Donetsk, between Donetsk and Mariupol. Mariupol, an important port city on the coast of the Sea of Azov and a steel town which is controlled by Ukraine at the moment, but there's been a lot of concern that could be a target for the rebels and there has been concern that the rebels might be preparing for some kind of advance onto Mariupol. Is there any strategic intent behind these skirmishes, these attacks, or are they just testing the Ukrainian forces? As far as we can tell, Russia and the rebels, its proxies in eastern Ukraine, are not planning some kind of major advance. It certainly appears over the last few months that any intentions that Russia may have had, any ambitions it may have had, to carve out a large chunk of eastern Ukraine as Novorossiya, a Russian-controlled entity, those have been shelved or very much trimmed. From what we can tell, Russia and the rebels are signalling their unhappiness with the way the political elements of the Minsk agreement are being implemented. Ukraine is implementing them, but according to its own interpretation, which differs from Russia's interpretation, and Russia has been complaining increasingly over the last few months that it isn't happy with how this is being done and urging the West to put pressure on Kiev to comply with Russia's interpretation of the agreement. And this may be a ratcheting up of that pressure and designed to uh, bring Western capitals once again into the game. Kiev signed the Minsk peace accord in February at a point where it was militarily very vulnerable and faced the possibility of some pretty bloody defeats at the hands of separatist forces. Are they in a better shape now to withstand this kind of pressure? They are probably in a better shape to withstand the military uh, pressure, but I think the last thing they want is a re-escalation of violence or or for this to once again reach the level of open all-out war, which it had reached seven or eight months ago. There are signs that the economy is perhaps starting to stabilise a little. The government is starting to get some reforms through. It had been showing signs of, in in a sense, being able to contain the situation in in eastern Ukraine uh, somewhat. So it it certainly doesn't want violence to break out again. But the problem is the Minsk deal was not a good deal for Ukraine on paper. And it was a good deal for Russia because it gave Russia what it wanted, which in essence would force Ukraine to reintegrate the eastern districts, but with a considerable degree of autonomy. 
which would allow Russia to use them as levers of, of Russian influence within Ukraine, while Ukraine would still, in effect, have to fund them while having very little, if any, political control over them. Ukraine, naturally enough, is not happy with that arrangement and has made this special status which it is prepared to give to the eastern regions conditional on those regions holding free and fair elections under Ukrainian law with international monitors to then produce what Kiev would then see as legitimate leaders that it's prepared to negotiate with. At the moment, Kiev will not negotiate with the leaders of the rebel regions. Kiev is hardly um, awash with cash to try and use to rebuild the war-torn east. And in fact, although there are tentative signs of economic stabilisation, its finances are in a complete mess, aren't they? How important is this debt restructuring, Elaine? It's incredibly important. The strange thing about Ukraine's debt crisis is the country didn't have that much debt to begin with. So one of the reasons that international credit investors were really keen on the country was that its debt to GDP levels were about 40%. That's really low. If you think Greece was 175%. But what's happened is the economic recession, the loss of the land in Crimea after the annexation, the troubles that have been happening in the East have all meant that the investors have fled and the currency has plunged. And that has meant that the debt to GDP levels have shot up. So when Ukraine agreed this rescue with the IMF, that was greeted with joy in Kiev. That was considered to be sort of the beginning of the road to recovery. What's happened since then is that the IMF has no intention of footing the bill itself. It thinks Ukraine needs 40 billion to sort of get back on an even keel. But it wants private creditors to take a share of that pain. And the negotiations with private creditors have not been smooth. And where are we in those talks? There is talk of a potential deal between Kiev and its creditors? Even those who are really close to negotiations don't know. So commentators are still saying it's it's sort of 50-50 at the moment, whether we'll see a deal between the two sides or whether Ukraine will hit the nuclear option and issue a moratorium on its debt payments. It's basically a polite way of saying it would default on its debt payments and not pay. So if you think negotiations started in March, we've had months of increasingly fractious back and forth between the two sides. They had face-to-face meetings in San Francisco, which is the home of Ukraine's largest creditor, that's Franklin Templeton, last week and we've been waiting day by day to hear what the outcome of those negotiations are. What we're hearing is that the discussions are still going on, but whether that means we'll get an outcome that's positive for both sides or we're going to get deeper into a mess is um, is still unknown. Kiev's had quite a lot of moral support for its restructuring stance from the IMF, obviously, and also from Western governments. Does the upsurge in violence, Neil, in recent weeks actually help the Ukrainian government in terms of exercising extra leverage over its creditors? It may help in terms of refocusing attention, particularly among European capitals and particularly in Berlin, on what's going in Ukraine. The impression is that Chancellor Merkel, who has really led the way on the the diplomacy over Ukraine, has naturally enough been very distracted in recent weeks and months by, first of all, the Greece situation and secondly, the migration crisis in Europe. And I think there's a sense in Kiev that Ukraine has been somewhat forgotten amidst all of that. So this upsurge in violence is drawing attention back to Ukraine and, and its problems. I'm not sure it will necessarily affect the creditors and the thinking of the creditors. It's likely to increase the pressure on them to come to some sort of a deal involving a fairly substantial haircut on their holdings of Ukrainian debt. But the creditors have argued very vociferously that they don't think it's needed, that uh, Ukraine's debt levels are not such that it faces a real solvency crisis, it's uh, a liquidity crisis, and they shouldn't be having to accept a haircut on their debt.
This is an abridged version of the FT's World Weekly Podcast. To listen to the full version, go to ft.com slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.